with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June 12, 2013, and this is episode 1148 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a good one for you today. Mr. Tom Stearns is on the line. Who's Mr. Tom Stearns? Many of you may not know him, but you might know his company. Tom is the owner, founder of High Mowing Organic Seeds, someone who uh, I do a lot of business with every year because they have so many cool, unique things at High Mowing Organic Seeds. And he's going to join us today to talk about individual food sovereignty through saving seeds and through working with seed strains and actually creating new varieties. This was a great interview. It went well past an hour, and uh, Tom is an awesome guy. Before I bring him on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. How are they the original? They're the first. They were the first people that came to me and said, Hey, Jack, we want to sponsor the show. I built the entire sponsorship program around them, the way that we vet our sponsors, etc. And they've been with us ever since. It's a survival podcast. In, uh, I believe, uh, eight days will have its fifth birthday. Uh, Safe Castle Royal has been with us since January of the, when we started the sponsorship program, uh, of, you know, the following year. So that's about four and a half years that we've been working together. That is something that I don't think happens in podcasting very often. A four and a half year relationship with a sponsor. And as far as I know from Vic, they ain't going nowhere. They love working with you guys. They love supporting you guys, and they love providing stuff to you guys. They also have a really awesome discount membership program, $49 one time, and for the rest of your life you get big big discounts on their stuff. They sell that every day again for $49. Bucks. But they support this, this show so much. If you are a member of the Support Brigade, you get that for free. You get that $49 membership for free, meaning basically your first year costs you a buck. Hey, but right now I'm running a sale on the MSB, so let's just talk about that re- real quick. Between now and close of business Sunday, if you use the discount code TSP Summer, again TSP Summer, all lowercase letters, you can sign up for your first year of MSB for thirty bucks. So this, the uh, discount membership from Safe Castle will basically make you profitable by nineteen dollars the day you sign up and then get their discount membership for free. Check them out today, Safe Castle Royal. You can find them at uh, prepared.pro. That's probably the easiest way to remember that one of their websites, prepared.pro, because they're professionals at helping you be prepared. Next up today, bulkammo.com, who also does a uh, discount for large purchases uh, of ammunition uh, for member support brigade members. And hey, if you're going to go to bulk ammo, you're probably going to be doing a large purchase. You're probably not going there to buy one box of, uh, of shells. You're going there to buy ammo in bulk. And you know why you're going to do that? Because of the triangle of gun operation effectiveness. There's three things we have to have as a gun operator to be effective. Training and a gun. you got to have those two. If you don't have a gun and you're well trained, you can point your finger at somebody and yell at them, but that doesn't really work very well. If you have a gun and you don't have the training, well, you know, you're probably not as effective as you think you are. And if you have ammunition but you don't have a gun or the training, you got another problem. We have to have all three of them. And ammo is critical because even if you're well-trained and have a gun, well, hopefully you're good using the gun as a club because uh, it's either an, a you know, very expensive club or possibly something you can pawn for a few bucks and maybe you can afford some ammo. 
that it won't do you any good. So you got to get over to bulk ammo today. You got to bulk up on your ammo. Remember, the other precious metal is copper jacketed lead. You can find lots of selection and great pricing and service at bulk ammo. Dot com. Next up, do want to remind you about that member support brigade. There is a sale. Uh, 30 bucks for your first year. That's $20 off. Discount code TSP, uh, TSP Summer. Again, TSP Summer. Yes, you can use it to pay by mail. Just write it. There's a place to write a service discount code. You can put any discount code in there on the form. Mail it in with your payment. If you pay by silver, we'll give you more time. If you pay by check or money order uh, or cash, it's 30 bucks a year. Yeah, you can buy as many years as you want. I've had people say, if I'm an existing member, can I add more time onto my membership? Only if you fill out the form and mail it in and do it by mail. I can't do it online. It's impossible. This way PayPal works and subscriptions work and my system works. I can't do it. I'm not being AT&T here going, offer only pertains to new customers. Anybody can do it, but you have to mail it in. And please note on the form that you have an active subscription because we're going to want to cancel your auto renewal or you're going to get double or triple billed or something like that if we don't do that for you. All right, with that wrapped up, I'm ready to get into uh, the main topics today. But before I bring Tom on, I've got something really cool for you. So I've been over at Walking to Freedom all morning uh, today and working my butt off to get the forum up to speed so that we can start getting it ready for our official launch at the end of the voting. Right now, and I put out a post this morning, we're, we're looking for final the final way that the uh, the results will be presented to the public, so to speak, as this is our list of 10 of the worst, and then these five are the ones that barely didn't make it, and they're kind of on a watch list. And the watch list isn't you suck, the watch list is, hey, if any of the people that are on the list this year get off it next year, these are the people most likely to end up on it, to fall from grace, so to speak. Because uh, who knows? I mean, Colorado's working hard to repeal their stupid firearms legislation, and if it if it happens, then maybe they won't be on the list next year. This is a fluid thing that changes. That's the whole point. Um, so we're just figuring that out. But the voting looks pretty clear. 55% of the voting in thus far on how to do this is exactly that. The top 10 worst states will have, you know, be listed as the ones that we're telling people to leave with five on a watch list, which is really not a big demerit or anything. It's just, hey, this is the, this is the group of, cause a lot, of, here's the real reason we want a watch list, guys. Cause there's gonna be people that are on the list that are going, why aren't they on the list? And, reality is most of the ones they would point to are in that group of five, so it would be like, they were close, so it's up to you guys to fix your state. Okay, So that's why I think that's important. But that's the top ten with five on a watch list is getting 55% of the vote right now, uh, and dropping D.C. is a clear winner. So I've gone ahead, set up uh, the ten uh, boards for people to write goodbye letters to their states, Uh, the 10 states that are going to be on the list, no matter how the voting works out. The, the only variable right now is do we have a watch list or not? That's the only thing. So here's the 10, and they're in alphabetical order, and I've got all the states in their respective uh, categories in alphabetical order to make them easy to find. The naughty list consists of, and this is official, it, it, no matter what we do with the voting now, it's not going to change this year. California, Colorado, Connecticut, Hawaii, Illinois, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, and Rhode Island. And uh, so they're, they're set up. And then there are state-level boards for every other board. And I did note the five states that were on a watch list. And uh, just the first one, not the worst one, but almost, but the first one in alphabetical order that was noted this way, 
This is what their board says. This board is for residents of Delaware to discuss life in the state and to work as ambassadors with individuals that are considering moving there in search of greater freedom and liberty. Okay, that's what every state says. The ones that are on the watch list, then it says the following. It should be noted that Delaware was ranked number 12 in disapproval voting just and just missed making the naughty list by two points and is therefore currently on the WTF watch list. So... And we'll eventually have something that explains what the watch list is with a link wherever it says watch list. Now, I've had some people suggest that since it looks like the voting's pretty dead gone clear, let's just go ahead and launch this thing. Here's the deal. I also went through today and I searched for like every state to find some positive stuff on all the states that didn't get a crap board. And uh, I moved topics into them to try to get this going. But I think it's important that maybe between now and I think the 29th is when the voting closes, we get at least a goodbye letter or two or three in every board, which means if you've already walked, post your goodbye letter. If you're making preparations to walk, post your goodbye letter in the California board or the, you know, the New York board or the Illinois board. And then we get some positive stuff going on in all the boards. So I tried to find, I didn't find one for everybody. I'll look more after the show. Uh, but I tried to find some kind of a positive thread or somebody asking a question about almost every state, move them down to their state boards. We want this to look active and motivating and things like that going on in it. Uh, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a, a proper press release, and I might release it on the 4th of July or around the 4th of July, let's say, because uh, it's Independence Day. So I just thought that'd be pretty cool. And I'll actually be in the state around the 4th of July, uh, not in Iowa running around uh, with the self-reliance fair. All right, so with that, I do have everything wrapped up. I wanted you guys to know all about what's going on in Walking to Freedom. If you get over there today, it's going to look a lot different than it did yesterday. Please join the forum if you haven't already, and please start uh, posting. And post what you love about your state. Remember, you don't have to be leaving to be helpful. If you live in Alabama and you like it, tell people why you like it there. And if you think there's certain parts of the state better than others for certain things, tell them that too. Start forming relationships with people in your own states. My hope is that each state board becomes a microcosm of activity within that state. And real tight relationships, just like we have on the TSP main forum, are formed there. And this is so regional that there's going to be a lot of opportunity for real-world meetings and people doing things like, hey, you're moving here, let's, you know what, we'll show up at your house and help you unload. How about some stuff like that? Somebody posted something about that happening with the Free State Project in New Hampshire and said, I know this forum really isn't about that level of local activity. And I responded with, um, of course it is. That's the entire point. Let's build the Sentinel team and let's move people to places with greater liberty and greater freedom and out of the crap holes of this country that are, you know, that are, that are circling the bowl much, much faster than any other parts of it. With that, I do have everything wrapped up again. Let's go ahead and introduce our special guest now. His name is Mr. Tom Stearns. He is the uh, owner and founder of uh, High Mowing Organic Seeds. He's uh, been doing this for a long time. He began gardening at an early age at his family home in Connecticut. Uh, he has a, a, he completed a degree in sustainable agriculture from Prescott College, Arizona, and he began saving seeds after that. And a hobby was born in 1996 in Vermont when Tom began sharing these seeds with others through a small seed flyer. Today, High Mowing Organic Seeds is expanded into one of the leading organic seed companies in the United States. So he's not just an advocate for sustainability and doing great things and the owner of a great seed company. He's proof 
that we still have opportunities in America, and it's an American success story. And I'm proud to introduce him now. Hey, Tom, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks, Jack. Great to be here. Hey, we have you on today to talk about going beyond even fighting GMOs and moving past things that we don't like and, and just start kind of doing it on our own. Um, and that's one great thing about the seed world is that if we don't like GMO seeds, we can start with good quality seed and, and we can build our own seed stocks up uh, locally as companies like you've done. But I think that there's maybe a lot of people out there that, you know, I have a huge part of the audience that gets all this, but also a lot of new people all the time coming in. Yeah. Can you just start off with why seeds matter? Why are they so important in the first place to our self-sufficiency, our independence, uh, our, you know, our, our sovereignty, really? Absolutely, yeah. I think you, you're totally right. Seeds are something that um, are a pretty key part of all of our lives, even though a lot of us at this point aren't farming anymore. Um, or certainly growing seeds anymore. But, um, you know, if, if all of your listeners think about what they ate today, what they ate for breakfast, um, maybe it was some grain of some kind, if it was bread or cereal, um, that was, of course, a seed, and it was a particular variety of seed. So let's say they had a, a bowl of Cheerios or something. There's wheat in there, and there's a variety of wheat that somebody bred and developed to work in a certain climate and to work for a certain type of farming method. And generally, the type of farming method that it was, was bred for is conventional agriculture, not organic agriculture. And so there's ways that you can select and breed for those sorts of things. People don't think about that when they're eating a bowl of cereal in the morning. What about when you pulled your socks on in the morning? Your, maybe they're cotton socks. Well, the cotton came obviously from a cotton plant, which a seed was planted to grow that cotton plant, and again, it was a specific variety. We're used to like gala apples or pink lady apples or granny smith apples, um, but when we think about these other parts, the variety name doesn't necessarily go with it. Certainly it doesn't go with it onto your socks. Um, over the last couple hundred years, and especially the last 50, the control of our seeds, this thing that is so essential to our life, has been more and more privatized and consolidated into fewer and fewer hands. And there's really a big response globally happening right now. It hits people in the gut as they learn about it. These things that are so important have been taken away from us and the control taken away from us, sometimes really consciously and sometimes just because that's how global trade and sort of the capitalistic society has, has driven things. But um, in many ways, this uh, reawakening of the importance of seeds was triggered by GMOs and genetic engineering. And so um, if there is a silver lining to all of that, it's the fact that it's woken a lot of people up to how important it is. And, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, my grandfather had certain seed lines he always saved, and, like, he was known for his tomatoes. They had kind of his own stamp on them after years and years, and yeah. uh, peppers and things like that. And, you know, I wish I could tell you that those seed lines are still around. I got like most teenagers and went off and tried to slay dragons, joined the military and kind of left the world for 15 years uh, of the homesteading thing. And no one else in the family took it up. And, and I understand how we lose, un unfortunately lose heirloom, individual heirloom lines like that. But how did we ever lose as, as a society control of our seeds? Is it the cumul cumulative effect of that or is it a much bigger kind of corporate autocracy thing? 
Well, it, it's, it's interesting. It's a really good point. Um, I mean, a, as consolidation has happened across every industry in this country, um, that means that it's larger and larger companies that are actually controlling it, all of it. You name it, whether it's cars, whether it's energy, whether it's telecommunications. We've all seen it happen. Just in, you know, in my lifetime, I'm 38 years old. I have seen such a huge amount of consolidation happen across every industry. And now you have these interesting, um, massive multinational conglomerate companies that are energy, pharmaceutical, and agricultural companies. They've yet to bring in a lot of the telecommunications in it, but some of the very largest companies in seed and in energy and in chemicals um, and pharmaceuticals are all the same company now. So there's been many business decisions made um, that have fostered this, you know, bigger is better approach, and uh, it's been really hard to exist as a small seed company and really hard to exist as a small telecommunications company. So, you know, over time, that's the direction it's gone. And, oh, there's a million reasons for why it's happened. The trouble is that very few people have been asking, should it happen or is it good that it's happening? And I don't really believe in exerting a whole lot of control over the marketplace, honestly. But I think that um, we need to really be careful about uh, what we invest in because um, uh, we're getting ourselves into some big trouble. Yeah, I mean, you use an interesting concept there. You know, you, you and I are probably both at least somewhat libertarian-minded toward economics, and we don't want to say, well, you have to have, you know, a certain variety of tomato be kept alive or whatever. We want market to do it for itself, but wouldn't you say that it actually controlling the market is actually how we got into a lot of this consolidation, not so much from our end of saying to preserve, but from the other end that these bigger companies, it's not, it, it's much easier for them to have 20 different corns to choose from with a number after them uh, than, than a thousand varieties. Well, for sure. I mean, there's this is sort of the economics of scale. What's happened at each level of consolidation so picture a, a big seed company buying a smaller seed company. Um, let's say the smaller seed company sells 200 varieties of seed. Well, when they get bought by this larger seed company, the first thing that that larger seed company is going to do is look at the bottom 25% of what varieties are selling in that new company and just drop them immediately. They can't afford to, to focus on that niche anymore. Um, they need to, you know, consolidate, improve efficiencies. In many cases, that means saying no to a lot of things that that smaller company had already been doing. So imagine that happening time and time again across hundreds of seed companies globally, probably thousands of seed companies. And then you end up with exactly what you're saying, where the options and choices are really uh, disappearing for folks. And the other thing about it is that those hundred varieties or 25 percent of the varieties that that company cut off, those were meaningful to somebody. They weren't meaningful to enough people, apparently, but they were meaningful to somebody. And that means that there is a casualty. Um, whatever that niche was is a casualty of that consolidation. Maybe it's um, farmers in New Jersey. Nobody's breeding for farmers in New Jersey anymore because there's so darn few of them. Heck, very few people are breeding for any vegetable growers, even on the East Coast, because it's all moved out west or it's all moved to Mexico and South America. So there's all these um, niches that used to exist uh, for a particular region or a particular size of a grower or particular crops or markets 
that are just getting dropped left and right. So now we all have to put up with spinach varieties that are bred for California and Salinas only, and we're trying to make them work here in Vermont. We're trying to make them work everywhere else, but they are really only bred for one county in California, and that's it. And hasn't that actually convinced people that certain things don't grow well in certain areas, even though it's not true? Like, because it's so blazing hot here in Texas, you would not think of Texas as a great place to farm spinach. But if you're farming spinach from, let's say, uh, late September, early October through the winter, it's actually a great climate to be doing that in. But there's, you know, unless you're, d you're doing the work yourself, there's a, not a lot of stuff that's bred to deal with what a spinach farmer has to deal with down here. But there's areas of Austin that used to be farm country that were some of the greatest producers of spinach out there, but the varieties yeah. they used are gone. Well, here's what happened. Um, most of this, there's three production regions of spinach in the United States. Uh, you've got Salinas, California, and, and that general area. You've got Texas, and you've got New Jersey. Those were the three places. In Texas, it was not so much for fresh spinach. It was more for the canning industry. Correct. In New Jersey, it was mostly for fresh because you're, you know, within three hours of, like, tens of millions of people up the eastern seaboard. Um, and in Salinas, it was also mostly fresh. So 20 years ago, those three production areas were still cranking. Um, over that time, however, first with New Jersey and then with Texas, the breeders and developers of new varieties stopped paying attention to the needs of the farmers in New Jersey. Those farmers were disappearing anyway, and there was just obviously not enough spinach seed sales for them to focus on, on breeding there. And then the same thing happened for Texas. Meanwhile, the New Jersey spinach farmers and the Texas spinach farmers, like you said, they're trying to use the varieties that are bred for California, and it's a totally different climate, totally different place, different market. But now they, um, they've got the, you know, the wrong tool for the, for the job, and California growers have, have all the attention. So now you have this consolidation of spinach there. Remember 2006, there was the big E. coli problem in spinach yep. California. Those are the kinds of things that you end up hap happening more frequently when you have such a um, monocrop and such a consolidation of one industry in one place. Plus, here we are, I'm on the East Coast right now, and there's spinach from California flooding Vermont when we can grow spinach right here, right now, just fine. So you have an incredible climate. You have an inc incredible climate there. You can produce it in the times of years that I can't. And, and frankly, I can produce it at a time of the year where you can't. And if there's going to be, and I know people are thinking, well, are they just going to talk about spinach? It's, I think the important thing to tell here, people, is that this is, this could be any vegetable or, or any variety we were talking about. This is just the perfect example. But it would make a lot of sense for spinach to be shipped from central Texas to Vermont in January. And it would yeah, make a lot of sense you just, for, yeah, you eat something else. Or eat something else. But, I mean, if you're going to have that interstate commerce, it, that would be the time of the year when we're really booming with it and you guys, it's under under ice. And vice versa. If, you, if I want fresh spinach in, in Texas in July, it ain't going to happen natively. It just isn't. It can't handle the heat. But you guys are you guys are cranking it out still. Yep, yep. So, yeah, you're right. Any crop, you can tell this sort of story. And, again, this is a similar story across energy telecommunications, many other sectors, and um, it's one that we're going to really have to look at over the next 50, 100 years if we are going to be resilient and adaptable to all the changes that are coming. 
The, the difference with uh, seed, though, to me, is that seed's living, and we all can take a part in it. So there's yeah. not a lot that you and I can do about the fact that pretty much Sprint, Verizon, and AT&T control everything yeah, yeah. now. And they're yeah. giving our information to the government. We can't set up you know, Tom and Jack's telecom and, and really compete. And if we did, we're going to be running on their networks anyway. But, yep, yep. But, but Tom and Jack and everybody listening to us today can pick one or two or three very specific lines and varieties to work with and start ensuring that that is going to be available in the future and that it becomes regionally adapted. Yep, yep. So how do people get started with that? What is the best thing as an individual we can do to get started with saving our own seeds? Well, it's totally a great point. You know, this is, like you said, something really accessible that people can do, and they can do it today, right now. Even if you don't have a big garden, or even if you just have a window box or something, you can, you can do it. What I would say, for starters, is uh, think about what your favorite vegetables are. You, you don't want to be putting all this time and energy into something that is, you know, like for me, radishes. I don't like radishes. I, I'm not going to bother saving a bunch of radish seed. We do as a company, but that's not my personal favorite. So those of you thinking about getting into this, think about your favorite um, type of crop out there and then start learning about what, what it takes to save the seed from it. Some are really simple. Tomatoes, beans, those are really simple. Others, like lettuce, are much more complicated. Um, so some take more space than others. Some you need to actually grow a lot of plants. But again, something like a tomato, you can just have one or two plants and usually be pretty fine. And then as you learn about that, you know, the basics of selection are something that you can learn about, but you're really wanting to pick the seed from the strongest plants, the healthiest plants, and also the, your favorite plants. Some are going to be yielding more. Some, let's say with tomatoes, are going to be sweeter. So that's the logical thing to save seed from those. And there's lots of technical things to learn about each one, but this is pretty basic. Remember, all of our ancestors have done this for 10,000 years. We're the last few generations here that haven't really been as engaged in this, but all of our ancestors kept this stuff going, so it should be, uh, should be in our blood somewhere. Yeah, you know, I remember reading a stat or hearing it during a speech that seemed vetted out like this was true, that if we represented all of the seed lines that were available in 1900 with a dollar bill, we'd have around three cents to a nickel left today. Yeah, that's true, and there's some crops that are, are worse than that even. Um, corn is an example of one that's even worse than that. So, uh, yeah, we've lost a lot, but there's also all kinds of new interesting varieties that we can breed um, for, for what's coming. We can breed things for organic agriculture. We can breed things for small diversified farms. We can breed things for climate change, whatever that may mean that's coming. Yeah, and I think that, like, so if someone wants to get started with saving seeds, I'd say there's there's kind of two sides to it. So let's say I picked out a, a watermelon that I thought was a great uh, variety of watermelon. It may not be that even there's anything wrong with that variety, but maybe it's not the best thing to start out with in my area. Maybe it's not a great watermelon for north-central Texas. Right. So maybe it would make sense then for that person that's starting out to, like, kind of find out, in the generic, let's say, heirloom line, what the best suited variety or varieties are for their area and grow even several of them to see what does best. And then start developing a regional seed line based on something that was already, let's say, halfway out of the gate. Yeah. Because haven't you noticed that when people do this, 
five, six seasons into it, those seeds are really heartily adapted now to that biome. Yes, definitely. And it depends on how rigorous you are with the selection. I mean, if you plant 100 plants and you're taking seed from 90 of them, that's a lot different than picking out the you know two or three best plants out of that patch. Also, let's say it's a really dry year, like you know you guys have down there sometimes. Yep. Really, really, really dry year, and it, and because of that drought, it kills 99% of your field, but there's a few survivors. That is really good natural selection right there. You got to take advantage of that to save seed from those survivors. And maybe they survived because they were in a little corner of the field that was wetter. So it was still an environmental thing, not a genetic thing. Maybe they survived because it was a lot more fertile in a certain corner of the field or or garden. But um, in general, with that sort of extreme pressure, you're going to see things that do better. And so it's uh, only logical that the seed from those will genetically be, be ready for that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was, I mean, I'm of the belief that there's tremendous opportunity for people to maybe not ever be a, a high mowing uh, organic seed, but maybe just be a provider of one or two varieties and get very creative with selection. One of the things I've said that somebody should do is pick, pick a good early maturing variety of corn and plant it like two weeks before you should. And you'll yeah. probably lose half of it. But save that seed and do it again next year and do it again next year. And you'll end up actually turning that into an even, you know, something with a little bit of initial frost haunts or cold soil emergence or something like that. And right. that one particular line can become a brand onto itself. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. And this idea of um, people kind of taking some responsibility for one or two varieties and, and working on it. There's some great examples out there of people doing that. There's also these seed libraries and seed exchanges, ways that people in their community can teach each other about saving seeds. Um, the way seed libraries work is really cool. It's like you check out a book from your library and you return it. But in the case of the seed library, you get a little packet of seed you bring it to your garden, you plant it, you eat some of the crop, but you save a bunch of seed and return that seed to the library so that it's available for more people to do. Like you said, seeds are living things. It's pretty cool. You can plant one seed and get 10,000 seeds from it. So um, taking advantage of that and using a library concept in that way is, I think, really empowering for communities. Uh, The seed exchange works in a similar way. Again, it's just people swapping seeds with each other, but with this sort of intention that you're not just going to be taking the seeds and growing and eating everything, but you're going to be selecting some of the varieties that work better and the, and the strains and the plants that are stronger, and, um, and you're going to have seed available and circulate it back into the group and exchange it again. I, I think there's a fundamental dynamic difference between small companies like yours and large companies as well with understanding the market. So a large company hates to hear about seed saving. That's the worst thing in the world because they want that order from that farmer every single year. A smaller company that's more agile realizes the more people doing this, the more call there's going to be for new varieties, new stock to start out with. And flat out, some people are going to have seed crop failures where they don't get a seed yield that year. I, I, fortunately, I've put some back, but I've been working with the same line of jalapenos for years and this year I got hit with a hailstorm, and I don't know if any of those the survivors are even going to make it. Um, right. So there, there's always going to be a need 
to have a company like yours and, and, and other competitors of yours that, you know, most of you guys are pretty friendly competitors at that level, to, to be able to go back and to act as warehouses and distribution centers and kind of places where all of this stuff can be put into trial gardens and, and mm-hmm. things like that. Well, we see ourselves as, this, as a hub um, and a resource. When you talk about the difference between small companies and big companies, I think it's also really important to talk about what are the, what's the mission of, of a particular company. So size definitely can matter, but also um, what is the mission? And are, are you in business to just make money and that's it? Are you in business to you know, stimulate the emergence of a new alternative seed system to support this new food system that we need? That's the whole point of us being in business. So we actually not only encourage and train people about seed saving, we have other seed companies come here to learn. Um, We put them through internships and trainings, sometimes really specific, sometimes more general, but we've done that to over a dozen seed companies. And in fact, we've got a group of about 50 seed companies that are coming here in, uh, in early fall. And so we're providing that kind of training, and it may be that they end up being uh, our competition and nipping at our heels in a couple of years. But that's great. That just keeps us better. And this industry, this organic seed community, is really in its infancy. And we need a lot more people engaged with it and a lot more people um, both saving seeds and starting seed companies and uh, as well as farming and gardening organically. So in, in, from my perspective, High mowing is in existence, not just to provide the physical seeds themselves, but to use that as a jumping-off point for sort of inspiring and educating and networking with this new emerging movement that we really need to see a lot more of. Yeah, and I mean, I can tell you that every year I order from you guys. I order from Baker Creek. I order from Victory. I order from Peaceful Valley. I order from probably a dozen you know, smaller companies. And I do it for two reasons. One, I try to spread the business around because I like what every one of you are doing. But two, there's always something that I can only get from you. There's Absolutely. always something I can only get from Victory. There's all, and there, a lot of times that that something maybe even doesn't turn out to be something I'm gonna I'm gonna make part of my regular growing. But I want to try different and new things every year. And none of you can possibly have everything. And the more we evolve and develop and, and, and create new lines, the more that becomes the case. Because yep. even though you want to carry more varieties than you know a Samantis, you don't want to carry everything because you want to carry what, what sells best with your customer base. Well, sure. We have all have different regions that we sell to or different types of customers. I mean, we sell to a lot of home gardeners, but we also sell to a lot of small farmers, people doing 5, 10, 20 acres. And so they really need things that have disease resistance and really yield very well and are consistent and uniform, Um, you know, something that they're they're making a living off of. Well, home gardeners care about all that same stuff, too. So it really benefits both ways. Um, But I agree. We buy seed from all kinds of different seed companies for our own research, Um, not just to test them how they're doing, but to learn about all the diversity that's out there. So I think it's great. I think that we are all better served by thriving, diverse, you know, small and medium-sized regional seed companies uh, rather than just having a few options from the big boys. And doesn't that start to lead toward, like, what I think you called in the notes I have for you, regional seed self-reliance? 
and, and how does that actually start to then contribute to building better individual communities? Yes, you know, like we were talking before, people taking responsibility for their seed and where it comes from. In the last 20 years, you, know, you and I and all your listeners have, have seen that people care a lot more now about where their food comes from. I'm not sure how many people think about where their seed comes from. It's more than it used to be. But that's something that I think is going to become increasingly important. And, of course, it's tied up in all of this other GMO stuff or consolidation in the industry, people realizing that it matters. It really matters where their seed comes from politically and socially and economically, as well as biologically and, and, and genetically and how it's going to suit their needs. So each region of this country... Um, uh, has unique growing climate, has unique cultural uh, requirements, it's got a unique demographic and mix of people, um, unique agriculture, different scales, different crops, that sort of thing. So to have seed companies in each region that are really focused on um, the, the needs of the farmers and gardeners in that region uh, is a lot different than just having some big, huge seed company out there that can't pay attention to those subtleties. And so learning how to grow seed in all different climates, I think, is really important. It's a lot trickier in the east than it is in the west because of the, the rain that comes any time here as opposed to having an actual, you know, rainy period and a dry period like most of the western U.S. has. And, and because of the whole regional thing, you're, you're gonna, that's going to create diversity in your seed lines as well. Sure, you could buy seeds from a grower somewhere else, but if you're going to highly specialize on things that you can prove out in your own trials, I'm probably not going to find, for instance, purple hole peas on, on the high mowing website. I might. I've not looked, but that's a southern crop. That's that's not a Vermont crop. Right. And, and that's, that is unique in of itself because – then you start having this overlap with with customers that want what both of you have because we have this you know this huge swath of country in the middle of us that can grow some things that I can't and and, and can grow some things that you can't that, that would do business with companies in both locations. Right, right. And you know each seed company also has its sort of um, desires of the, the people in the company and the marketing team, and this is not just divorced from the actual people at at each company. There's you know, uh, each of us has our own personalities we put into the work that we do. And so I may have a passion for this crop or that crop or this region or that region or this type of customer. And, and of course, that ends up reflecting in the catalog, too. Yes, absolutely. Um, can we talk a little bit about how we, we actually breed varieties for food systems that we want to have? How do we kind of start down that path toward toward coming up with new varieties even because like you mentioned that you know we have a lot of new things now that we've we've kind of built in the last thing and i talked about the whole you know we're down to a nickel uh, on the dollar of what's mm -hmm. left but the reality is we have more to work with than the people that started doing this when, when it started and i mean thousands of years ago there were a few wild varieties of everything there was one real brassia that led to cauliflower broccoli kale everything um, so we have a lot to work with, and how can we start really capitalizing on that? Yeah, well, it's 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 true. You're right. There's a lot out there, and there's a lot of knowledge now. I mean, with the web and with uh, how accessible information is, we've got a lot of powerful tools in front of us. Um, 
several things that, that come to mind right away. W one of the things that we need to change about our food system is the fact that we're moving food from one end of the country to the other constantly. I mean, most of your listeners will probably know, you know, this, some of these facts about how the average um, meal has, average ingredient or food has moved 1,500 miles or more from where it was produced to getting to you. There's plenty that move a lot more than that, and vegetables are one of them that move quite a lot more than that in most cases. So solving that problem means that we need to know how to produce stuff in our own region more. Certain things, like you were talking about spinach in January, Vermonters just should not be eating spinach in January. We can use hoop houses um, to provide a little bit of winter protection, and we can eat spinach all the way till December, and then we'll have to skip most of January and February, but then we can start eating it again in March. So who cares that we don't have spinach for two months? We can have it for ten, and we don't need to ship it in from anywhere else. But we need to have varieties that are adapted to that. The big sea companies out there that are breeding spinach for Salinas, California, they are definitely not paying attention to the needs of small organic farmers in Vermont growing in the winter in hoop houses. I mean, that is so different. And even there, you're not, you don't need a Vermont-specific spinach. You need Vermont-specific spinach is because you have several different growing seasons for spinach in the, that 10-month cycle. Right. And it doesn't mean that the varieties that really work well here won't also work well in, in other climates, say in the, in the greater northeast or the greater north in general. So it's not like there needs to be, the, the breeding needs to be so ultra-specific to this one valley in Vermont or something like that. Um, they're adaptable, and we can breed varieties to be adaptable. And that's one of the things I think that's really important relative to climate change because we don't know exactly what the conditions are going to be like over the next hundred years. It's going to be hotter, drier, colder, wetter. It's going to be more up and down. And we're seeing it here every season. We had no rain for a month this spring, and then it rained for three weeks solid. It's never done that before. And that's I visited really when it rained for three weeks solid, by the way. That's when I was up there. I visited Vermont last year during the three weeks of solid yeah. rain. Yeah. So... Um, you know, breeding new varieties, first you got to think about what are, your, what are your goals? Are you breeding for it to be adapted to a certain region? Is it fresh food that you're talking about, like fresh spinach again, or fresh tomatoes versus a processed product like tomato sauce or, or canned spinach or frozen spinach? So, you know, each crop has its own different way of, of doing that. But in the very basic terms, what you'd be looking at is, Let's say you've got a tomato variety that is, tastes really good, but it has some disease problems. It gets, it's really susceptible to some diseases that happen all the time. Then you have another tomato variety that is actually shows a lot of good natural resistance to those diseases, but the taste is not very good. So you've got one that tastes good, but it dies on you. You have another that's alive, but it doesn't taste good. So that's a problem. Well... <laughs> In breeding a new variety, what you can do is cross those two. You just take the pollen from one and bring it over to the female flower of another and dust it on there. There's more particulars, but just in basic terms, that's what you do. And you end up combining these two. And you have traits of both. The seed that you save from that is going to be traits of both. Just like you and I, we each have traits, from some from our mom and some from our dad. It's a combination of the genes that result in that offspring. So you then save that seed, plant it, and see if that 
that new combination the next year has what you're looking for, which in this case would be the really good flavor of one variety and the really good disease resistance of the other variety. You combine them together like they're parents, and then you've got this offspring. You then save the seed from that and select it again for a couple more seasons. Sometimes it takes six or eight years or six or eight cycles of growing it to actually um, get all 100% of them to be the kind of uh, thing you're looking for, the, the good flavor and the disease resistance. But then at that point, that's, you've got a new variety, and you've got something that maybe nobody else was paying attention to or caring about because a big company didn't think there was enough of a market for it. That doesn't mean it's not important to do. It just means that they couldn't make enough money at it. So as we're breeding things here, there's all sorts of little niches that we can breed and select for that are just too small for the big boys but are plenty big enough for us. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, your your points are, are really well well made there, but you're you're kind of getting into the world of hybrid, and I'd like to talk about that if I could sure. for a while because people you know have gotten to a point where there's been so much negative press and rightly so on GMO, they've they've confused a, a cross pollination with a genetic modification, right, um, right. and, and it's really not the same thing. And I also kind of want to if maybe you could talk a little bit about how hybrids eventually can become heirlooms. How Yes, when we cross and we get that F1 generation, we usually get some characteristics of both. When we save that seed, a lot of times we won't get a true-to-type reproduction. But if we do that enough times, that's where every single heirloom line came from. And we select yeah. select what produces again what we're looking for and cull out the rest. And you can do that usually in like five to seven generations. You can produce an entire new strain of seed, right? Absolutely. Yeah, just like I was saying, you know, many of our new varieties and many of our old varieties, many of the diversity in agriculture in general um, came from a cross. It came from something where two varieties combined, and what I mean by that is the two corn varieties sitting in a field. The wind blows pollen from one onto the other. This is very natural. These plants know how to do this. They're doing it all the time. Maple trees are doing it all the time. Animals are doing it all the time. People are doing it all the time. The crossing and the mixing of genes is something that is a strengthening thing for most species. Um, you think about dogs. You think about something like a dachshund that is bred to be so specific in its shape. Dachshunds have back problems and hip problems and all kinds of issues like that. Oriental short hair cats. My, my parents had these. They've got these narrow, pointy jaws, and they always have jaw and teeth problems. When you breed so narrowly like that, you end up having these, these sorts of problems, and it's inbreeding depression. Nature is not meant to be narrow in that way. It's meant to cross. It's meant to mix up. That's why the longest living dogs out there are always mutts. They're always random combinations of all kinds of things. And they have the least problems, too. They don't run around the corner and have their tip fl hip fly out or, or whatever. Right, right. There's a resiliency in there by having a deep genetic gene pool. We talk about it in the way that we want to have lots of different varieties out there, but even in one particular variety, having a good um, genetic base is really important. So, you know, heirloom varieties are ones that have been handed down from generation to generation, and they haven't really had modern breeding. They haven't gotten selected through a, a super scientific method or at a university or that kind of a thing. 
open pollinated varieties may be ones that um, were bred or developed by somebody more recently and with a little bit more um, scientific rigor, but with heirlooms and open pollinated varieties, you can save the seed and plant it and you'll get the same thing. Hybrids are something, again, that's been happening for thousands of years. And people started to notice this 100 years ago, how there were some strengths, uh, some added vigor, or some earlier maturing um, plants when there was a hybrid cross. So people started doing it on purpose instead of just letting it happen you know, with the wind or with the insects and start to notice about the kind of improvements to varieties that you could get. You can still save the seed from hybrids, but like you said before, when you plant that seed, not all of them are going to come out the same. It's going to revert back to one parent or another parent, but then over time you can keep selecting for it and end up with a, a more stable variety that would then be an open-pollinated variety, maybe like a, a dehybridized hybrid in some ways. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, the the mortgage lifter tomato, which is very well known out of the, out of out of burpee, yeah. from the, the, that was a hybrid that became an heirloom. Yeah, well, you know, again, it's something you people should save a seed from hybrids all over the place. It's really interesting to see what happens. Hmm. You get into genetic engineering, and it's a totally different thing. I can describe my quick definitions of that and talk about how it's different if you want. Please but, do. Uh, okay, so. Genetic engineering is new. This is not something that's been done for 100 years. This is not something that our ancestors did. This is a product of um, modern reductionistic um, genetic thinking and technology that allows scientists and lab technicians to actually insert genes from one species into another species in a way that would never happen in nature. It's totally outside of natural reproductive methods. And then the resulting plant um, has genes from a bacteria inserted in it, or it has genes for resistance to an herbicide inserted in it. Um, these are things that then, when a farmer plants them, uh, there's all sorts of different ways that they have to work with the crop in order to, pr to produce it. It may mean there's different chemicals that they need to use. Um, it may mean that each section of the plant is actually producing an insecticide. So anytime uh, a bug eats a part of the plant, um, it dies. Any kind of bug that eats any part of the plant dies. It is a uh, often touted as this um, way that we can outsmart nature. In, in my opinion, it doesn't count as true progress if it doesn't actually lead to healthier soils, healthier farms, uh, healthier food supply. It's just this overly technical um, uh, Band-Aid approach. And the one example that I'll use really specifically is that there's a lot of breeding being done in genetic engineering right now for salt tolerance, um, for corn that can grow in really, really salty soils or for other crops that can grow in really salty soils. Well, there's a reason why the soils have gotten so salty. Poor farming practices. Uh, especially when you're dealing with irrigation and you're in an arid climate. Um, can Deforestation, right? Yeah. That's a huge, the, the, the water table basically, losing the hydraulic pump uh, component of the, of the forest systems is a big part of this. And what's happening in Australia, this government solution is they give the farmers pumps to pump the salt water into the drainage systems, which mm -hmm. just exasperates the problem. 
All right, right. so here's the elegant solution, right? We just breed something to handle growing in that totally crappy soil. Well, it's not hitting any of the root causes of the problem at all. It just allows us to be sloppier, bad farmers, and that is going to come back and bite us sooner rather than later. And, again, it does not count as progress in my book. It is very limited and not an elegant solution at all. It is a very one-sided, limited solution. So I love scientists. I love the hunger of searching for how to do something new and different. But please, let's have it focus on progress. So I invite anybody out there who's a, a scientist in genetic engineering to, to start leading towards some real true progress as opposed to Band-Aids. I think one of the lies that's been sold to a lot of the researchers, because the companies like Monsanto, ConAgra, and Bear control the universities, is that it can't be done naturally. Everybody will starve to death. These organic people are crazy. It's fine for yuppies that shop at Whole Foods or whatever, or Sprouts, but you know we can't do this and feed the world where... I think actually in in time we could do a better job feeding the world with a decentralized system with regionally adapted seeds. And what you just described, the best way I could draw an analogy for to someone to how stupid that approach is. And I'm sorry, but I call it this dumb. I would totally be agree. if you had cancer of the brain and the tumor was putting pressure on a a nerve and giving you massive headaches. And I, as a doctor, didn't just see you had a headache. I actually knew you had cancer, but I gave you a painkiller strong enough to effectively suppress your pain. and said, here you go, and set you out the door. And all that does is let the tumor sit in there until it pops and your, your brain explodes, yep. and, and then you're dead. And that's, that's exactly what we're doing with like this genetic engineering to handle salt or fallow fields and things like that, where we should be restoring the soils. Yep. Yeah, I mean, we, um, and this again is why by saving seeds and sharing them with people, you can take like an active positive role. It's really hard to know how to fight against these things that seem so big and so out of our league. And while it is good to fight, and I applaud the efforts of those fighting, whether it's in lawsuits or GMO labeling laws or all that kind of stuff, um, for me personally, I like to spend maybe five percent of my time fighting what I don't believe in and 95 percent of it building something that I do believe in. I think that's an excellent approach. I mean, but one of the things you guys have is the Safe Seed Pledge, right? You want to tell folks about that? Yeah. So in 1999, I really started to get concerned that the major voice coming out of the seed industry was totally 100 percent pro-genetic uh, engineering that there was no organized group of seed companies that was actually against it and was saying that we're against it. And seed and seed companies were trying to get a bad rap and getting all lumped together. So again, this is in 1999. And remember, the first genetically modified crops came out just three years earlier in 1996. That was corn. So... I started calling a bunch of other seed companies that I knew. And back then in 99, this was just, high mowing was just my little hobby. Um, let's see, I was 22 years old or 23 years old or something. It was just on the cusp of becoming a real business. So I called these other seed companies, connections that I had made with folks, and I sent them a few drafts of this um, paragraph that I called the Safe Seed Pledge. And I said, what do you think about this? Was this something you would help me draft, help me wordsmith a little bit, and then see if we can all agree to this statement, put it in our seed catalogs, and invite all the other seed companies in the country to sign on to this? 
And so there was a group of about eight or nine other seed companies that helped with the, the wordsmithing of this Safe Seed Pledge. And then we sent a letter out to 300 seed companies around the country. You know, we all signed it and said, we invite you to join us in this. Within a month, we had 150 seed companies that had signed it, half of the seed companies in the U.S. And everybody printed it in their catalog and continues to do that today. And that's, that's 14 years later. This pledge remains the only really real thing that binds a bunch of seed companies in the sort of alternative non-GE sphere together. There hasn't been any trade organization that we all are a part of or, or any other kind of group, but we all have been a part of this pledge, and it, it's an important pledge, I think, because it talks about what we're against, but very importantly, it also talks about the kind of progress we want to see. And what you're for. Right, what we are for, what we believe in, and, and what inspires us, and, and what we think agricultural progress should look like. Yeah, you know, and this is what, you know, when you were telling that story, here's the first thing I thought of. If a large company had come up with that idea, the first thing they most likely would have done is tried to prevent anybody else from using it. Where as soon as a small company came with, up with it, the first thing they did was try to get everybody on board with not only taking part in it, but being part of its development and because of that, it spread like wildfire because in, in typical corporate mindset, whatever I have, I want to be unique and proprietary. And if it's a certification, well, I want me and the two or three other big players to all have members of the board. So we actually use it to quash competition where this came on really, really fast with the concept of, you know what? We're not competing with each other. We're all competing with them. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's a good point. Um, it's a pretty exciting process to do that, and and uh, um, the the pledge is very much uh, active still. We get questions about it on a daily basis. Yeah, you know, I I know you like to focus on solutions, but some of the, the the problems that need to be addressed with GMO are the way that I always try to explain this. There's this there's this concept in homesteading and agriculture that goes back to Old Testament days, you know, the one ox scoring the other, that basically if I live in an area and I've been there for a long time and you move in and decide you want to have cattle and I've never had a fence, it's your responsibility to fence your cattle in, not my responsibility to fence your cattle out because I was there and you've, you've now ingressed upon my livelihood and it's yeah. your responsibility to control your cows. Well, genetic modification doesn't get held back by a fence. So if I'm down the road from you and you're farming GMO corn, um, I've got multiple problems. I've got a cross-pollination problem. I've got an herbicide drift problem. I've got a pesticide drift problem. I've got a nutrient drift problem. And it all goes back to that genetically modified crop. And, and to me, that's why they're so dangerous, because we can only do so much, especially with, with, with things like corn. Um, yeah. to, to prevent that from spreading. Yeah, I mean, it's a private property issue in my mind. Um, if somebody is dumping something in a river and it's flowing down into your property and affecting your crops there, there's laws against that kind of stuff. If people used to do it, but now they don't. Then maybe they do in some cases still, but there, there's laws against it. In this case, um, I really do see this simply as a private property issue. There's a lot of other reasons why I don't like it, but uh, preventing somebody else from farming the way they want to is something that, um, that that you shouldn't do. And there's there's 
I don't know some of the ins and outs and the technical aspects of this, but I would think that if there was a possibility of putting the um, the genetically engineered traits not in the pollen, not in the pollen-bearing part of the plant, but, for example, having it carried in the female genes, the pollen is the male genes, then it wouldn't be blowing around all over the place. The pollen would just be regular conventional pollen blowing everywhere. So you wouldn't have the drift and the isolation requirements that you have now. Now, maybe that's possible, maybe that's not possible. I do think that that is possible in the case of sugar beets, but I'm not sure about on corn or, or some other things. Um, but yeah, it's it's um, it's a complicated issue, and unfortunately, you end up pitting farmer against farmer in some cases, where a neighbor chooses to farm one way, and uh, and another neighbor chooses to farm another way, and they end up being at odds with each other. Yeah, and I mean, you, you know, if you did your solution there, which I can't believe you and I are the two smartest human beings on planet Earth and can't believe that these companies couldn't come up with that idea on their own, the problem would be that you couldn't then go sue a farmer who you've accidentally cross-pollinated for a patent infringement. Right. That would yeah, that I mean, just be terrible, you know. You that's a big part of their that's a big part of their research budget, you know, is as those fines with their with their private seed police. Right. I mean, it, it is interesting to be able to say um, my pollen, uh, my product's pollen is going to blow onto your place, and I am not liable. And but you, then, but you are. are count as as having stolen it from me. It's kind of like having it both ways. Uh, there's been a few cases that have come up, court cases that have um, tried to clarify that and and um, and come to a definitive decision about you know you can't have it both ways. I, I don't know. I don't know the most current update on some of that stuff, but um, yep, it's uh, it's something I look forward to uh, us all getting done with and putting behind us. I, yeah, I, I completely agree, and I, I don't mean to go off on the, the, the problem side too deep there. It's just I think that those are things that people need to be thinking about. People that have listened to this show for a long time know all about this stuff, but like I said, we get new folks here every day, yeah. and it's a real danger. It's a real risk, and it's a risk to all of us because, I mean, these idiots have even done things like, you know, they've played around with what they call a Terminator gene. And, and that's that's like, have you ever read a science fiction book ever before you start doing something like this? <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, and for those that may not be familiar with that, the concept was okay. The, the companies like Monsanto didn't want farmers saving a soybean, so they were going to put a Terminator gene in it, so that if the crop wasn't sprayed with a certain chemical at a certain time, the seed would just basically kill its fertility. Sterile. It would be sterile. And now you think, okay, well, if that cross pollinates, then you know you could basically put an end to the viability of every other farmer's seed line anywhere that, that that gene... And once the gene gets out, it's out. It's it, You don't put it back in the bottle. It, it doesn't work. And like you said earlier when we were talking about this, they're taking cross-species, right? We're taking a right. gene from a fish and shoving it into a cotton seed. Nature couldn't do that in a billion years. It, yeah. it, and but now it can now it can happen over it, and we don't know what the fifth and sixth or seventh generation of cross pollination of that fish gene in a cotton seed does. And people think of cotton and go, well, they make shirts out of that. And you read labels and see how much crap has cotton seed meal and cotton seed oil in it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, again, people have many different um, reasons why they don't like uh, genetic engineering. The kind of things that you're talking about um, hit many people on the sort of the philosophical or religious side of things that that is just not right. 
Um, and while I certainly understand that perspective on it too, I, I also look at it from the perspective of progress. Again, back to this point I was making before, what is this getting us? This is just allowing us to farm poorly as opposed to really making progress. We want intact rural communities with thriving people who can have jobs and uh, not, a, not a, a Midwest and a Plains that's totally devoid of people and is losing towns left and right. And uh, in addition to cleaner soils, in addition to cleaner water, cleaner air, healthier food, more nutrient-dense food, those are the kinds of things. And there has been some genetic engineering done on increasing uh, the nutrient density of foods, but in some cases it's, it's basically because the processing of that food denatures the nutrients so much that, again, it's a total Band-Aid approach. Like, I don't know, these guys need to read different philosophers than Descartes. That's all I can say. <laughs> I'd like to kind of, as we get towards finishing up here, talk about some of the ways this could change. I mean, one of the things I think is we need to, re to return to the days where a person could make a living on two to ten acres. And I, I, see, I think some people look at that and go, that's just not possible. And I look at it and go, of course it is. Oh, I know people who are. I know people who are making, you know, sixty grand, seventy grand per acre. Wow! And um, uh, in in growing high end vegetables and selling them locally. Now it's not just that they're selling them to fancy rich people or fancy rich restaurants or something like that. They are just able to produce really intensively, um, high value products, and they have really sharp pencils. So they're not wasting their time on crops that they just break even on. They're really choosing carefully which ones they're making money on. And um, and they know their markets, and yeah, I, I know a couple of people here in Vermont that grow on literally just a couple of acres, and you know it's a you know like a husband and wife team, and they're bringing home a hundred k. And that's a good living anywhere in America today, except yeah, maybe yeah, except maybe Manhattan and L.A. I mean, other than that, you can live well on that kind of a, a, a of even a gross income if you even have a twenty thousand dollars worth of expenses to go. You're still looking at an eighty k income. Yeah. And again, you know, when you're in L.A. or Manhattan, you've got a whole different level of expenses. When you're living yeah. in Vermont and you're growing your own food, um, you know, people have all kinds of different lifestyles that they choose and, and that they want to have. So I'm not trying to tell anybody what they should do with any of that. But I do think that it is possible for um, people to farm on a small, intensive scale and, um, and make a real fair return for it. We need to value it. We need to really value food more. People talk about... Um, uh, that food costs so much. I don't think it costs nearly enough, to be honest. I think that the true cost of raising food in a good, healthy way, um, we need to bear that. We need to decide as a society to bear that and, uh, and figure out how to, how to prioritize that. It's easy for me to say that with, you know, with a full belly from lunch yeah. a couple yeah. of hours ago. I understand that part of this broken food system we have has, is broken because we have left tens of millions of people behind and that there needs to be food security and a safety net and support and a hand up for folks who um, uh, don't have the luxury of either the job or the skills um, or the knowledge to be able to, to do any of this stuff for themselves. So our food system being broken on so many different levels means that the solutions need to be in a lot of different levels too and these are agricultural solutions as well as political and economic solutions. Well, you bring up a great point with this food being far too inexpensive, and I think we we don't really actually see the cost 
because the cost oh, is the degradation of our, our landscape. It's the, the massive subsidies that are pushed in on the backside, the degradation of health and everything else. But I, I can make it so much more simple for people. If I told you a loaf of bread was $10, yep. you, you'd be like, yeah, you get out of here. I don't care what it is. And you know, if I said it's just a regular loaf of bread, you'd say, you're really nuts. It's not even like some special you know, chef-made artesian. No, it's just a loaf of bread. You'd say that's ridiculous. If you had to plant the wheat, harvest the wheat, winnow the wheat, grind the wheat, <laughs> produce all the other ingredients that go into a loaf of bread, knead the bread, let it rise, and bake it, and you had to start with dirt and end up with a loaf of bread, mm-hmm. and you had the choice between that and paying $10 for a loaf of bread, mm-hmm. when you ate bread, which you would eat a lot less bread, which would yeah. probably be good for you physically, you would be happy to pay $10 for it. Yep. Well, you know, I um, I live in a community up here in northern Vermont where there are a lot of small farmers and cheesemakers and a lot of organic folks, and um, I'm always proud to buy uh, the food and the products that they make because um, I see them thriving, I see them making good livings, and I see where they put their money. They're not buying brand-new fancy F-350s, they're putting it back into their community, they're paying their, their staff or their farm help well, um, they're investing in the kind of community that, that we want to have. So that's also a very different thing. When you have a food system that is close to home and you know who it is you're buying it from, it's very different to pay 10 bucks for that bread versus uh, 99 cents when you know where it's going. And I, again, I know that there's not people do not have the luxury of paying for that kind of stuff. But you're right that there are a huge amount of costs that are not figured into this. You mentioned energy. You mentioned the subsidies. But think about our whole health care system. Oh, yeah. What you, what you really ought to imagine is adding the price of food plus the price of health care. And look at that compared to buying fresh local food uh, and organic food as opposed to just, you know, kind of comparing the, the conventional food to it. Figure in all your health care needs whether it's insurance costs or everything else, and uh, then you start to get to something a little more equal. Yeah, and I mean, it makes me think of, like, my grandparents, right? And I'm not going to suggest anybody live the way my grandfather on my dad's side did, but I'm just pointing out a reality that doesn't happen anymore. My grandfather probably, probably ate bacon and eggs six days out of seven days a week. Yeah. Uh, lots of it. Lots of it. He smoked Camel No Filters. Nice. Um, he partake, partook in a lot of adult beverages. He worked in coal mines until he beat his body apart. They, but they had a homestead. Half of the meat they ate was either deer meat or uh, chicken off of the homestead. They had a garden. And he was probably about 95 years old before his health really failed him. Yep. And, and, and that was being way more abusive on his body than I would ever recommend anybody do. But I think that we have to acknowledge it probably had an awful lot to do with, with working hard, being connected to the environment, and eating highly nutrient-dense, good-quality food and not crap out of a store. And the other thing was they were not wealthy people, but when they did buy stuff from stores, they would tend to buy things that were kind of luxury items sure. because they were providing their own basal needs. So right. it's a lot easier to spend $18 on a, a pound of artisan cheese if I'm providing half of my food, because now really it's kind of costing me nine bucks. Yeah, well, it's true, and and um, people can eat cheaply um, and eat well if they're eating from scratch more, 
And that means you've got to cook more. That means you need to take the time. You need to have the knowledge to do that. But uh, a friend of mine did a, a project up here where she ate, like, really basic stuff, all from Vermont, accented it with a little bit of some, you know, um, some, some nicer ingredients from around the area, but basically ate pretty basic and just cooked from scratch, just local potatoes, beans, you know, some things like that. Um, and she was able to eat a 100% local, 100% organic diet for uh, really, really cheap. It was something like $23 a week. Oh, wow. That's and, great. You know, and she had a small little garden to kind of supplement things in there. And she just wanted to, like, prove the point in this research project that um, local food is not expensive, you know, that you can make all kinds of choices. Again, it takes time and other sorts of things. And, and some people, a lot of people need help and support in that. But uh, anyway, a lot of solutions out there to all the problems that we've got. And the solutions need to be appropriate scale. There's little things, big things, all kinds of things. I, don't, I think we're at a time right now where we yep. just need to throw everything up against the wall and see what sticks. So any ideas that people get inspired by that they think might be part of the solution, there's no time like now to start. So uh, I, I encourage you and your listeners to keep on spreading the word about this stuff, but to, more importantly, take, take action, whatever action suits you and that you're inspired by take it today i've got one final thing for you to comment on and then we'll wrap up um i read uh, an article in uh, acres magazine this this month uh it was an interview with peter bain a well-known uh, permaculturist uh, actually who referenced ben falk who's up in your backyard yeah. uh during that article but one of the things he said in that article is i think we could do with a nation of 50 million farmers and i think that's where we're headed what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I think that, you know, a um, hundred years ago, a lot more of us were farming, of course. So that means that, uh, and for, you know, 99% of the time uh, that we've been uh, alive the last, you know, 10,000, 12,000 years, we were mostly all farming. So I think there's a lot of people that are born to farm. They never see it as an option growing up. They never see it as an option in grade school or high school or college. But if you're out there and you're sitting in a crappy job somewhere and you don't like it and you don't feel like you're doing what you're meant to do, more likely than not, you're meant to farm. So <laughs> get off your butt and uh, and get into the garden. Yeah, and I think the thing is you'll never fire yourself. I know I'm not going to fire myself, uh, Tom. You're not going to probably fire yourself. Nope. So there's a security once, especially once you own that piece of land yep. and you've made it fertile, that will always be there. L let folks know a little bit about your website because you've got a lot of stuff there that, honestly, until recently, I never even noticed. You've got a lot of resources, oh, uh, yeah. videos and stuff like that, seed-saving information, all kinds of great stuff. Yeah, we sure do. So highmowingseeds.com, you can find um, – Lots of information, not just about all the varieties that we sell, but like you said, growing instructions, um, planting instructions, seed-saving instructions, um, lots of information. We have a really active e-newsletter and blog um, that has huge archives, easy to search, organized by different categories. This is all original material. This is not stuff we're copying and pasting from somewhere. This is all original material. Uh, we probably have... Um, a hundred blog posts a year. These are real articles and uh, in-depth stuff. I just wrote one a couple of days ago called Eat More Dirt, Gardening with Your Kids. And I've got a daughter who's nine and another one who's 12. And this is just, you know, 
me reflecting on 12 years of gardening with my kids at different times. But we've got articles on all kinds of things there. And it's fresh and new all the time, so we really try to be a, a resource for gardeners and farmers out there on, on all kinds of information, help them succeed. Well, great. And, folks, you need to go by the website again. It's uh, highmowingseeds.com. I'll have a link in today's show notes. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention here at the end that you guys have been a great supporter of the work we do here. And uh, all members of our support brigade actually get free shipping on your on your seed orders. And I really would just like to personally thank you uh, for being a supporter for now, like two and a half years in doing that for our members because it does mean a lot. Uh, that we see the overlap because I know sometimes probably like when the first time you ever heard about this whole survival podcast thing we probably you know wondered about these folks here but what we are is just a bunch of people recapturing the, the lessons we've lost from our grandparents and, and and thank you Tom for supporting what we do that way absolutely happy to do it and you know there's, there's a lot to learn out there from all of us so um, it's, uh, it's, it's great to to help spread the word of, of what you're doing and vice versa Alright folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirigo today along with Tom Stearns helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for